You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. The Old Testament book, we're looking together at chapter 1. And you're going to find this on page 774 of the Pew Bible. We're looking at Jonah chapter 1, verses 11 through 17, finishing up chapter 1. Hear the word of God. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Well, obviously, as we can see, God pursued his disobedient prophet by hurling a great wind upon the sea. The mighty tempest that ensued was so large that it was breaking up the ship. And the frightened sailors cast lots to figure out who was the cause of this. And of course, Jonah's guilt was exposed and he confessed to them his disobedience. For Jonah himself, this was cathartic. He had unburdened his soul. And grace was at work and mercy prevailed as the prophet repented. And what a gift of grace that is. As a side note, how tragic it would be to be left without repentance. God was not done with Jonah, as we'll see, but this was the first step. For the mariners, this was alarming, as you can imagine. An offended God is an angry God. And for all their spiritual ignorance at this point, they realized that their situation was precarious. And I want us to note in passing that noble character, when we see it, is worthy of our admiration. Noble souls, and by that I mean those souls that elevate to an extraordinary degree honor, virtue, generosity, And I think in our text, we see examples of noble character in both Jonah and the sailors. Well, Jonah had been identified by Lot as the reason behind the mighty storm. 
The sailors, it says, were exceedingly afraid because he was running from God. And they all knew something had to be done if they were to escape the tempest. And since it was Jonah's God behind it, Jonah was the one who should know. So they said, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? And what came out of Jonah's lips was amazing display, I believe, of noble character. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will be quiet down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So not only did he confess his guilt, but here he assumes full responsibility. Before we had his repentance in his confession, now we have his faith in his courage. He concedes his fault and surrenders himself to the penalty of death because this man, Jonah, would rather die trusting the Messiah than save his skin and cause the death of so many others. As only a prophet of God could, Jonah himself predicted their deliverance. Hurl me into the sea and the sea will quiet down for you. And there's the only alternative. As grisly as it sounds, it's the only way. If the ship is to be spared, the demands of justice must be satisfied. Somebody's got to die. And Jonah realized that his escape from Nineveh had been thwarted. His sin finally caught up to him. And justice had him in its grip. And the rebellious prophet deserved death. Isn't that what the elder read earlier? The soul that sins shall die. He must abandon himself to God's wrath as the only way to save the ship. And I think therein we find an Old Testament precursor to the New Testament sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the parallel is not exact, of course, because Jonah should suffer for his own sin. But both men, Jonah and Jesus, were willing to be sacrificed to God's wrath for the sake of others. Resembling our Lord, Jonah voluntarily offered himself to satisfy justice. And Jesus himself tells us, greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The greatest proof of human love, in other words, is the sacrifice of oneself for one's friends. Christ's love surpasses all others because he sacrificed himself for his enemies. And as you and I both know, human life is valuable, but Jesus Christ is infinitely worth more than a billion of us, all of us combined. And each day we draw breath is another opportunity to bless God for Jesus Christ. He assumed the responsibility for our salvation by sacrificing himself. Greater love hath no man than that. And as he looked down from heaven, he saw sinners destined for perdition. And we can imagine him saying to himself and to all the host of heaven, they need a savior. I'm going to go myself and save them. He saw the storm of judgment and he said, pick me up and hurl me into the wrath of God. At the same time in the story before us, the pagan sailors displayed a striking degree of human kindness, I think. They ignored Jonah's counsel, as you can see, to throw him into the depths of the sea. It says the men rowed hard 
to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. They didn't want to bear the guilt associated with such a cruel enterprise. So they did everything in their power to save themselves from the need to hurl him into the sea. But God was determined, and the storm grew more intense, and they cried out to the Lord, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and don't lay on us innocent blood, because you, O Lord, have done it as you pleased. And isn't it amazing how gloriously these men went from pagans to believers so rapidly? Did that ever strike you? I want you to see the power of grace in these men's lives. These men began calling upon God by using his covenant name, Yahweh. They had a powerful sense of God's strict, unyielding justice and truth. They recognized here the Lord's sovereignty over the storm and his prophet. Their consciences were tender and their prayer was sincere and they were afraid of incurring wrath and the displeasure of the living God. And they didn't want the guilt of Jonah's blood to be upon their heads. And I believe the prayer proves they had been convinced by God's providence that he is God. No more calling on false gods. There's one God. And it's God alone. Matthew Henry says they are now as earnest in praying to be saved from the peril of sin as they were before in praying to be saved from the peril of the sea. That's conversion. And I believe it demonstrates the power of the Spirit's regenerating grace. An amazing thing. And so having petitioned heaven, these men now are ready to execute the deed. And you can imagine with me how very poignant was the scene. The sailors wearied, exhausted from trying everything possible. The prophet now at peace with God and his soul and the reality of his death. All of them standing together on deck, waiting for the inevitable move. And they pick him up, and they hurl him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. That's an incredible sight. What an unprecedented turn of events. One moment they're fighting this mighty tempest, and the next moment it's complete calm. And if there was any doubt as to the origin of the storm before, there is no doubt now. The storm calmed immediately. The tempest subsided instantly, and it was a demonstration of the almighty power of God over all things. He can whip up a storm, and he can calm it down because he's sovereign. And I think those sailors foreshadowed the disciples. You remember when Jesus calmed the sea? And do you remember what those disciples said? They were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? As far as the sailors knew, the prophet Jonah had plunged to his death. And that would be their story upon returning to port. It'd be told over and over again. They would tell of the disobedient Jewish prophet who was willing to sacrifice himself. They would tell their friends and marvel at the awesome God who controls heaven and earth and the sea. And the text says those men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to him and made vows. 
So their newfound beliefs were confirmed and they, over, they were overcome with this deep veneration for the true and living God. Yahweh was now their God. They had been delivered from idolatry. They had witnessed God's justice in pursuing Jonah. They had seen God's power in raising the storm. They had experienced God's mercy in delivering the ship. And they had received God's grace in blessing them. And so in response, I believe, out of gratitude for their deliverance and to make atonement for their guilt, what did they do? They offered a sacrifice for their souls. And unknown to them, something happened to Jonah that was truly amazing. And it's proof that in the midst of judgment, God always remembers mercy. Verse 17 says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So not only does God control the wind and the waves, but he also controls every creature of the sea. That great fish was appointed by him. He was enlisted to serve his purpose. And in this instance, the great fish was assigned to be Jonah's deliverer. And what a great mercy that was. He deserved to die, let's face it. But he was kept alive. What a demonstration of both divine power and divine mercy. That God could save Jonah is one thing. That he would save Jonah is another thing entirely. That's mercy. And the fish was prepared for this very purpose. And of course, it was one of the more notable Old Testament foreshadowings of our Lord Jesus. Christ himself said, as we read, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And I want you to see how Jesus himself affirms the historicity of the Jonah story. You know, sadly, there are some who point to verse 17 as the reason for not believing in God's word. If that verse were removed, they say, the rest of the story might be plausible, but not with that. Three days, three nights in the belly of the fish? And yet here comes Jesus who confirms the reality of Jonah by being swallowed by a great fish. He who never lies, who cannot lie, implies that this amazing story is true. And if anybody scoffs at such Old Testament stories as if they are fables, let them remember the words of Christ. The scoffers forget that in scoffing they pour contempt upon the Lord Jesus. The authority of the Old and New Testaments stand or fall together. And the same spirit who inspired Jonah inspired the apostles to write about Jesus. So you jettison Jonah, you jettison Jesus. And Jonah served as a sign to those of his generation, especially those in Nineveh. And you can imagine that few things were more extraordinary than the story of his deliverance. His amazing story became very famous and effectual among the Ninevites. And as Jesus warned his unbelieving listeners of his day, he gave them only the sign of Jonah. 
You see, Jonah's story foreshadowed the death and resurrection of Jesus. You know the story. Our Redeemer was crucified, buried, and he rose again on the third day. In accordance with the scriptures in general and in accord with the story of Jonah in particular, he rose on the third day. And yet the people of Jesus' day would not and did not believe in him. The people of Nineveh, by contrast, repented and believed with far less revelation. They lacked the privileges and the advantages enjoyed by those first century Jews. And those Ninevites, those pagan Ninevites, repented under Jonah's preaching with less light and less evidence. But those unbelieving Pharisees, they would not repent. And the only sign that they were going to receive would be the sign of Jonah. As the prophet was in the belly of the fish, so Christ was buried in the darkness of the tomb. And you can see the ultimate purpose for Jonah's story was to foreshadow Christ. Everything in Scripture points to Jesus. He's the substance of God's revelation. And this story and the three days is a teaching tool for instructing the church about Messiah. I love what R.T. Kendall says about this. I quote, The belly of the fish is not a happy place to live, but it's a good place to learn. And for those with eyes to see and ears to hear, this story nourished their faith. Three days and three nights assigned to both, and both came forth alive and well. And as Jonah preached repentance to Nineveh, so Jesus spreads the gospel to the world. His resurrection, the greatest sign of all time. The greatest of all signs proving that he is the Christ. He died. He was buried. He continued under the power of death for a time. And you and I both know that death had this strange and strong power in the world. Death. It prevailed over every person. What man can live and never see death, says the psalmist. No one, high or low, rich or poor, great or small, is able to avoid death. Through Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and death spread to everyone. And the tyranny of death has oppressed every generation since the Garden of Eden. With unrelenting fury, death mows down every sinful human being. And that's the fulfillment of justice. And the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so Jesus... The great substitute for believers had to fall under the power of death. And he did so by enduring the pain and the shame and the curse of the Roman cross. He did so without, not by constraint. He did this voluntarily as a willing sacrifice. And Jesus laid in that tomb. And he came under the power of death for our iniquities. You know the theology behind that. Our sins were imputed to him so that he who knew no sin was made sin for us. And because our sins were imputed to him, the penalty of death came upon him. 
So not only was he pierced for our transgressions, not only was Jesus crushed for our iniquities, but Christ died for our sins. And thus our great Savior continued under the power of death until the third day, the belly of the fish, third day, the darkness of the tomb, third day. The king of terrors brought the king of glory down to the gloom of the tomb, but that dreadful enemy could not hold down the Christ for very long, only the third day. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it, said Peter. Jesus had become a priest by the power of an indestructible life, so even though he was imprisoned for our sins, his imprisonment was short-lived. And when justice was satisfied, it was impossible for him to be detained. This is a man who has life in and of himself. He has life in his own power. He conquered the prince of death. And he now offers eternal life to anyone and everyone who believes in him. And I just wonder if someone here has yet to accept those terms. You know, the sign of Jonah has been fulfilled. And it matters not who you are or where you're from or what you've done. He offers life to you simply if you believe. That seems so foolish, but it's true. So in reflecting on this, I think we can rejoice in the humiliation of Christ, who was obedient even to the point of death. As we said, as Jonah was swallowed by the great fish, so Jesus was swallowed by the earth. As Jonah was delivered from the fish's belly, so Jesus was delivered from the tomb. And as Jonah was the reason for Nineveh to repent, so Jesus is the reason for all to repent. You know, those hard-hearted Pharisees rejected Christ. They refused to believe. And Jesus said, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The death, burial, resurrection of Christ, the greatest signs of all time. But sadly, it will not exert the same influence upon the world as Jonah's did upon Nineveh. The Ninevites repented, but the world chooses to walk in darkness. And doesn't this show the exceeding sinfulness of sin? And doesn't it show the incredible need for the new birth? Jesus is infinitely greater than Jonah. In every way, he's superior. And that being so, the world is under far greater obligation than the Ninevites to repent. Those penitent Ninevites of Jonah's day will rise up in the judgment and condemn all those of every age who hear the gospel and reject it. And thus, how grateful then should we be for the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit? How can we ever tire of saying that? The supernatural change of heart is absolutely necessary for salvation. As Flavel puts it, the door of salvation can never be opened without the key of regeneration. And you know those famous words that our Lord told to the teacher Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that's the point on which every person's eternal happiness hinges. New birth. Those are the only two options. Either we be changed or we be condemned. No resolutions, no restitutions, no reformations can save anybody from hell. Neither can any ordinary gifts or common abilities or religious duties or services. Those outward things have absolutely nothing to do with salvation. Unless we become new creatures in Christ, we can't even see the kingdom. You can't even see it. And the Bible gives not one shred of hope to an unregenerate person. Not one. And yes, Christ died for the worst of sinners, but regeneration is the only method for salvation. He came to save us not to continue in our sins, but to be freed from our sins. And his way is to lead us from conversion through sanctification to salvation. And the new birth begins that process and its fruit will become evident. So thank God who promises to give his Holy Spirit to all of his people. Do you see the evidence of regeneration in your life? Then rejoice and be glad. You see repentance, faith, sincerity, rejoice and be glad. And draw comfort from the sign of Jonah, which pointed to the resurrection of Christ, the greatest sign in the history of the world. Crucifixion paid our debt of sin and resurrection triumphs over the grave. Jesus sealed the covenant with his own precious blood. And through death, he destroyed him that had the power of death. And his resurrection, this wonderful sign, confirmed his victory and assured us of eternal life. So by his death, he put an end to sin for believers and all of its miserable effects. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And when the justice of God was ready to destroy, Jesus stepped in and he saved. He diverted the storm of wrath from everyone who trusts in him. And if you're a believer, if you are a believer, not the least drop of wrath will ever fall upon you. You deserve it, and so do I. But we're never going to feel it. Christ saw you exposed to hell, unable to help yourself, incapable of doing anything to deliver yourself, and he pitied you, and he died in your place. <laughs> That's the gospel. By the resurrection, he proved that he is God, and he rose as the first fruits of the general resurrection from the dead, so that religious pride is shamed, human faith is supported, and unbelief is left inexcusable. So let's rejoice in the love of Christ who rose again for our justification. No heart can conceive and no tongue can confess the greatness of his love. That's why Paul prays that you and I might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. His love cannot be fully known by anybody this side of heaven. 
All we can do is pray that God enables us to know something of it, the love of Christ. Paul refers to the amazing dimensions of his redeeming love, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. And our closing prayer is simply that our God would equip us to know and to grow in the glorious love of Jesus Christ. May that be so. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that when the Lord Jesus himself saw that storm of wrath swirling around us, he was willing to be hurled into the midst of it so that we, undeserving as we are, might be saved from it. We thank you for this great sign of the resurrection of Christ and pray that you'll help us to sing our praises to him with hearts that are filled with joy and gratitude, for we ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ himself. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.